Welcome to the Guardian and Visit London's pod tours. These pod tours are designed to be taken on location as guided walks. They should work in real time, but we've divided them into chapters in case you get out of sync. And there's a map to download too, so print it off before you go. If you're listening at home, they should still work as a documentary in their own right, so sit back and enjoy. But if you're walking with us, then take yourself to Jamaica Road in Bermondsey, South East London. You'll meet your guide now on the corner of Mill Street and Jamaica Road, once the edge of the poorest slum in London, Jacob's Island. But before setting off on this ghostly Bermondsey adventure, wait here a while as we set the scene. Near to the part of the Thames on which the church at Rotherhithe abuts, where the buildings on the banks are dirtiest, and the vessels on the river blackest with the dust of colliers, and the smoke of close-built, low-roofed houses, there exists the filthiest, the strangest, the most extraordinary of the many localities that are hidden in London, wholly unknown even by name to the great mass of its inhabitants. Welcome to beautiful Bermondsey, queen of all the London boroughs. Well, I'm Nell, your tour guide, and I'm going to show you the scenes of the strangest tales because this part of the city is all about legends. And it's up to you to judge whether they're true or not. Never send red and white flowers to a funeral, bandages and blood. We always go over a bridge because you never take anyone underground before their time. A Bermondsey superstition. It is one of those places where the history does feel quite alive. It feels quite as if it's sort of around us today. It must be because of the the buildings and the street patterns and the street names are very sort of resonant of, of what's gone on in the past. London's past is still alive in the fabric of its buildings. I mean, any street is a kind of palimpsest. Uh, palimpsest is a, a manuscript which has been written over in, in, at different times in different hands. Well, I mean, a street is, is often a kind of palimpsest. Legends and superstitions, Bermondsey's full of it. Smells, atmosphere and people. That's Bermondsey. And that's me too. I collect stories of Bermondsey and tell them to whoever will listen. Storyteller, if you like. Some of them can be pretty spooky, but don't be scared. Keep your wits about you and stick with me and you'll be just fine. So let's get going. Walk up Mill Street, all the way to the end. Once upon a time, there was a girl called Nell. She wasn't born rich, but she sought riches. As an orphan in Bermondsey, life wasn't easy. Tell you what, this place gives me the shivers. One of the really notorious areas in Bermondsey is Jacobs Island. And it was an area that started to be built over in the in the 17th century. But by the 19th century, the housing that was there was really, really notorious slum housing. This place was unbelievable. The smell alone would knock you flat when you come round the corner. 
Of course, in London, the 19th century, you get outbreaks of cholera, and Jacobs Island was a real sort of black spot for cholera. And it became one of those sort of scandals of London where people who were concerned about social conditions would go there and would write sort of horrified accounts of, of the, the sort of sheer squalor that people were living in. And maybe the most famous account of it is the fictionalised account in Oliver Twist by Charles Dickens, which is supposedly set in, in Jacob's Island. To reach this place, the visitor has to penetrate through a maze of close narrow and muddy streets, thronged by the roughest and poorest of waterside people, and devoted to the traffic they may be supposed to occasion. The cheapest and least delicate provisions are heaped in the shops. The coarsest and commonest articles of wearing apparel dangle at the salesman's door and stream from the house parapet and windows, jostling with unemployed labourers of the lowest class, ballast heavers, coal whippers, brazen women, ragged children and the rough and refuse of the river, he makes his way with difficulty along, assailed by offensive sights and smells from the narrow alleys which branch off on the right and left and deafened by the clash of ponderous wagons that bear great piles of merchandise from the stacks of warehouses that rise from every corner. For Dickens, who really knew London, she'd walk around London, for Dickens to describe it as the poorest of the poor areas, even worse than St Giles, is, is, is quite something, a sort of league table of poverty. People were drinking, they were pulling drinking water out, out of the sewers that ran into the Thames. Bend right, Bermondsey Wall West. Now, stop here a minute by the river. Look back at the city of London. Wouldn't have looked like that in Mayhew's day. That used to be a separate city altogether. Stop here by the river. Life on Bermondsey's Victorian streets was hard for Mel. All right, now let's have a look at it. Hungry, destitute and cold, she learnt to fend for herself. It's gorgeous, isn't it? But it's changed a lot since my day. Well, the first thing is, it wouldn't have had that tower bridge. People, when, when Tower Bridge was being built, um, there, were, there were people on the north bank campaigning against it being built because it would link directly to places like Jacob's Island. They had this terror that this um, southern contagion of poverty would flow across, across to North London. Bermondsey was completely separate. It was like its own little town. Continue walking along Bermondsey Wall West. All these docks round here, it was mayhem. Look at them all. There's, uh... Sincerely, that was tea, it was all right. You'd have ivory wolf. Mark Brown's wolf was bacon, eggs, Polish bacon and eggs. You'd have tea wolf, Caledonian wolf. Butler's wolf, they done like fruit, oranges. Then there was spice wolf, which is the dock head by Jacob's Island. You'd walk through there and you'd smell the curries and spices and flowers. Oh, it was quite an amazing place. A lot of London's food came through those docks. It's got this tag, this name tag of the Larder of London. There's quite a lot of well-known names of grocery firms like Cross and Blackwell. You know, it was it was the source of a lot of lot of Londoners' food. 
I got my brief, what they called a doc brief, when I was 21, and I came out when I was 55. So it was roughly 34 years. It was an experience that I wouldn't have missed for the world because I used to say that you could walk along the river and smell the world. George Rowe, turn right. Stealing the odd loaf of bread wasn't enough for Nell. A better life always seemed to be just beyond her grasp. But in the end, Nell's better life was under her feet, in the sewers. Yeah, right below this mayhem and chaos, that's where I belong. They call us Toshers. The Toshers were part of the low life of Victorian London and they were the scavengers who worked in the sewers. A lot of the Toshers lived in Bermondsey. It was, it was, it was a poor area and it, you've got to be quite desperate to go and run around the old um, sewers. Well, the new, the new sewers and the old rivers is the best way to describe it. So buried, buried rivers are, um, like, like the Fleet and a Walbrook. Well, they said it was dangerous. Even made it illegal all over a bit of drowning. Not that I was bothered. I made good money. I ate and drank well and no one told me what to do. They developed their own their own subculture, their own legends, their own ways of being. They're starting to um, anthropomorphise the creatures around them. And the creatures around them are rats. Any job involving water and, and danger, if you think of fishermen, the number of superstitions that fishermen have, um, sailors as well, they develop, start to develop their own superstitions. So their, their superstition is focused on rats, and in particular this large queen rat. The queen rat, if she took a particular fancy to a young tosher, to a, to a young male tosher, anyway, she could transform herself um, for one night, one night only, into a raven-headed beauty, seduce the guy, spend the night with him, and then disappear in the morning. You can even hear her sometimes. Continue up George Row. Now, I told you Bermondsey was a place of legends. Well, because I'm your storyteller, I'm going to introduce you to this one. There is one fantastic story in all senses of the word that relates to where we're standing right now because in a tiny cramped attic room on Jamaica Road the prophetess and visionary and mystic although some say con woman and trickster Joanna Southcott was reported to have lived and to have given birth to the new messiah aged 64 years old but a story began far from Bermondsey in the West Country of Devon. And her life was very ordinary there. She was born in 1750, she was unmarried, until she was 42, and she was working as a servant for Mrs Taylor of Exeter. She was scrubbing the floor when she heard a voice speak to her. And she believed that this was the voice of God. She began to write down and transcribe these messages. All the money that she'd worked for over 20 years to, to save, she used the money to have a pamphlet printed called The Strange Effects of Faith. At the end of George Row, turn right onto Jamaica Road. 
cross the dual carriageway and take your first left into Abbey Street. She had lots of followers and Joanna Southcott rewarded all her followers by giving them folded pieces of paper and called them her seals and said if you had one of these you would get into heaven and they were quite controversial because people at the time said that she was selling them for kind of extortionate prices although she always said she gave them freely but what's interesting about the paper is that that came from Elias Carpenter who was a paper maker who worked at um, the Neckinger paper mills so it was kind of Bermondsey water Bermondsey paper that kind of made up these controversial seals nothing much happens for nine or ten years and then when she is 63 she is standing in a room and she feels it lit up with the, the brightness of, of a billion candles and she feels herself floating upwards into the sky and the voice tells her there and then that she is the bride of the lamb, that she should order 12 gowns for her wedding, that she's going to carry and give birth to the new messiah. She keeps this secret for a while, but by the spring she's telling all her followers, all her disciples, and that's when they reportedly move her into a room on Jamaica Road, an attic room, and a crowd is gathering on Jamaica Road and coming along Abbey Street, and they're kind of crowding outside her room and jeering and catcalling, and they're demanding their miracle. It's a midwinter day, on the 25th of December, when she reported that her child was born and it was shimmering with light and her eyes were aching with the sight of this child, the new Messiah, her Shiloh, she called it, and she closed her eyes for just a second. And when she opened them, the baby had disappeared as if it had never been there. And of course, the doctor said she'd never had a child. She was still a virgin. She was 64 years old. It was an impossibility. And she died, some say romantically she died of a broken heart, but she died two days after that. Here we are on that very spot, and right next to it is Neckinger Mill. Now, it used to be a paper mill. Neckinger Mill, stop here. Well, Neckinger Mill up on the left is one of the real important industrial buildings of Bermondsey, and now, of course, it's listed. Originally, it was a paper mill, and, of course, it's built just by the Neckinger, and when it was built, it was pre-steam power, so water was necessary for, for all these big industrial concerns. But in the early 19th century, around about 1800, it becomes a leather mill. Now, leather had always been associated with Bermondsey, but this mill it was really devoted to sort of treating leather and making it into a saleable commodity, adding value to it. And by the turn of the 20th century, it was a very sort of prosperous mill owned by a firm called Bevington's. Big employee numbers, a lot of whom were women who worked there, and they basically treated the leather, polished it, coloured it, cut it into shape, and it produced what was called light leather for things like book binding. Quite an important building for, for Bermondsey. Before going under the tunnel, turn right into Druid Street. So, we're going to walk along beside the railway. 
built in 1836, London to Greenwich. Know a lot, don't I? Well, I've had a long time to learn. Well, the, the viaduct that you see on your left is a really important thing. It was one of the first railway viaducts in London. The line that it carries was certainly the first passenger railway line built in the 1830s and the line was from Greenwich to London, so a very sort of small line in, in our terms, but a very, very big and important step at the time. Got a lot of tourist admiration, partly because of this rather stunning architectural thing of putting the, the railway up above the heights, heights of people. The spa was the first station we had. And as we walked through Druid Street, you can see to your left these amazing railway arches that were built, first of all, for us to get through, but then became hives of industry, working places, store places, and things that we had there. And when you walked along Druid Street, for me, my memory of that is the smells. You've got Jacob's Island over to your right, and you've got the smells from the spice meals there, the curry, and then to the left, the Spire Bakery is behind you, so you can smell the baking, the pier stuff factory to the back of you, so the custard's being mixed, and Pete Freen's baking on a Thursday would come whifting over. So anywhere near Abbey Street or walking down Druid Street, for me, is a memory of smells. I suppose the other reason why these arches figure in Bermondsey's history is what happened during the Second World War, during the bombing. Bermondsey was really badly hit by bombs, partly because it was near the docks and this was a target for the German bombers, just partly because it was sort of in, in the middle, middle of, uh, of London. Absolutely terrifying. <laughs> We'd been to the pie shop, which was in Albion Street then, and coming along with the pie and potatoes and that, in the in the basin and we hadn't heard the siren go and we were walking back and all of a sudden my sisters come running towards us come on come on and just then we heard the bombs really and of course she pushed us against the wall and sort of covered us we managed to save the pie and mash continue down Druid Street crossing Tanner Street There was a particular tragedy at the Druid Street arches. People sheltered in the arches. Obviously, on the north bank of the river, people sheltered in tube stations, but there weren't any tube stations at Bermondsey at that time. The bomb hit the railway, but it went right through the railway arch and didn't explode then until it went through the railway arch and exploded in amongst the people. I think over 60 people were actually sheltering and they were all killed. My mother didn't go, and I didn't go to the shelter regularly. After that incident I had with him, that's it. We stayed indoors, all through the bombing. And if it got a bit too heavy, we'd sit under the table. Bermondsey suffered hugely from the war. You looked in my books as a funeral director. 
in the 1940s, every one of those families lost people during that period of time. It didn't dampen them. They got up and got on. I think we owe Burmese a big debt in the war. As a boy, I walked every single day of my life as a kid through Druid Street. And over on the right in Druid Street, there's a little park area. There are buried, I believe, the ashes of Alfred and Ada Salter. Alfred Salter was perhaps a legend in Bermondsey. Well, the Salters are really two of the sort of heroes of the Bermondsey story in the 20th century. Both of them were incredibly interested in social improvement. And he was a doctor and treated the poor very, very cheaply, if not for free. And this was before the National Health Service. And they were committed to doing everything possible for the, the poor of Bermondsey. And he eventually became the MP and she became the mayor. So between them, they, they, they became, the, if you like, the sort of king and queen of Bermondsey. He was so appalled by the deprivation in Bermondsey. In the 1920s, 1930s, going along there, that was the height of his sort of career. And for the first houses that were put in Bermondsey, the, not the tenement houses from years back, but the first proper housing. And this was supposed to be the sort of ideal of sort of urban housing for, for the working classes. It's my view that he and his wife and their campaigning and their work actually changed the direction of the area. It put us on the map, I think. Tower Bridge Road. Cross it. Continue up Druid Street. One of the interesting things about Bermondsey is the street names where they tell a story about sort of local associations and everything. We've got Jamaica Road here and that sort of reflects the connections between London and the West Indies and Jamaica, the sugar trade, the rum trade. This idea of the city as an archive, it's, it's an archive of... Of, of transformations, of arrivals, of departures, and of the things which those arrivals and departures have, have, have brought, the impact that they have actually had on, uh, on the city. Some other streets, you've got few streets in Bermondsey named after um, the leather trade, which is, you know, one of the big things about Bermondsey's history. So um, you've got Tanner Street, which reflects that. We've also got Crucifix Lane, and that reflects quite a sort of famous Saxon cross, a holy relic that back in the medieval period was one of the sites of Bermondsey Abbey, if you like, and attracted pilgrims from quite far afield. You know, streets and, and squares do preserve, they do preserve past epochs, not only because of the, because of the stones they're built of, but because, because of the particular configuration that they have and that there's a there's a sense in which um, it's it's not too fanciful, perhaps, to, to, to think that a, a given area for the people who go and dwell in it at a much later stage in history 
they will be in some sense impregnated. The historical past can impinge on them to the extent that living in that area is to be formed and marked, perhaps unconsciously, by past events. Bend left, crucifix lane, continue under the tunnel. Down here. <laughs> Do I sound like a ghost? Turn left, Bermondsey Street. Continue for five minutes to St. Mary Magdalene Church. Damn, sirs. I'm sure I saw something glinting. Nell was a magpie. She scraped through mud waded through sludge, seeking out the necklace, the wristwatch, that would pay for the evening's entertainment above ground. Yeah, this way, this way. I know I'm going to be lucky today. Oh, is that? Someone's coming. Right, yes, my name's Rob Smith. Um, I've worked for Thames Water for some 20-odd years, and we're currently standing in the Bermondsey Street sewer, underneath Bermondsey Street, junction of Tooley Street. There's, there's at least one sewer down every road, so they can be anything from a four foot by two foot eight inches up to a three or four metre diameter sewer. Cool, it's hot down here. It is a labyrinth. You could travel for many miles under the streets of London without ever coming out. Can hardly see your hands in front of your face. These sewers were built by Bazalgette. About the late 1800s, most of them, thousands of people were employed building the sewer system. There was no machines that built brick sewers. They were all built by hand. 
If sewage was Nell's friend, then the tidal Thames was Nell's enemy. The water could fill the tunnels in a blink, and many a tosher lost their life out of greed in the hope of finding that one priceless gem. The danger's flooding. If you get caught in the system when there's a storm, the system can fill up and you can only hold your breath for so long. There's gases, chemicals, there's lots of different noises and it only needs for one noise to come in that shouldn't be there and immediately you pick that noise up. It's a sixth sense, if you like. It's a very heightened awareness. For seven years, Nell outwitted the waters. But one misty autumn morning in 1850, old Father Thames outwitted her. The level's rising. We're getting to that time of day, one o'clock, coming up 12, one o'clock. Um, the levels in the sewer system rise because of people are all coming out of their offices, restaurants, going to the toilet. So the levels are coming up to the afternoon peak and uh, I think it's uh, time to make an orderly exit, really. Her body floated out to the Thames and beyond, but her spirit couldn't leave. Nell walks Bermondsey's streets and sewers. Now the borough is hers. St. Mary Magdalene's Church and enter the graveyard through the gate on your left. So as we walk along Bermondsey Street at the Abbey Street Long Lane end, that's St Mary Magdalene's Church and really was part of the old abbey. And that's where my family ancestry in funeral directing really has its origins. On the corner by Long Lane and Bermondsey Street, 
Right opposite, there's a watch house. And that watch house is the cemetery area of the churchyard that we were the guardians of. And it was a frightening time, really, because people were often buried. And I don't think it would be terribly unusual that someone might have been buried before their death. Because the actual spotting of a death was not an easy thing in those days. And it's possible that people were buried alive. And that's why people come up with little machines that were in the churchyard, which would be bells on cords on, in a pipe that would go down and be on your finger. And so if you were alive, the bell would ring. And the person, which would be my ancestry, in the churchyard would recognise the sound of the bell and someone might save you. So there were one or two of those little contraptions that were rigged up. It sounds very far-fetched, but you know what? True. I think true. Southwark at one time had two hospitals just uh, near where London Bridge Station is now. Um, the old St Thomas's was knocked down when London Bridge Station was built, but Guy's Hospital is still there. Um, as is the old operating theatre where dead bodies were, corpses were operated on, uh, dissected for in the public as well. You could pay to go and see these bodies cut up, but there was a, there was a, there was a dearth, there was a lack of dead bodies up until 1832. Up until 1832, you could only legally buy the bodies of um, convicted and executed felons. Now, what happens in late 18th century London is that. The, the, the laws are liberalised. This is the whole thing about being hung for a sheep, hung for a lamb. Uh, you weren't hung for that anymore. And also we started exporting our criminals to Australia. So there was, there was a, a gap in the market, basically, from the late 18th century up until 1832, um, whereby there were less people being executed and therefore there were less bodies for the medical profession to work on. And after 1832, anybody could donate their body to, body to science. So suddenly there was a, there was a glut You've heard of grave robbers. Well, we would be there to sacredly care for the dead. And you would have, most people assumed that people were dug up. That was hard work and the bodies wouldn't have been fresh. You could perhaps get as much as £50 for a body that was fresh from for anatomical science because of the Anatomies Act that didn't come until later on you weren't allowed as a doctor, a practising doctor, to do such a thing. So they would buy bodies, but it would be much easier to attack a funeral. As it arrived in Bermondsey Street, about to be buried, if you attacked that funeral, you could make off with the body and you might have several years of income. To prevent that, we had what we called truncheons, which were brass-ended, heavy pieces of wood that the bearers that would protect the body by walking alongside the hearse, one end of the truncheon was walled off an attacker or strike a person trying to attack the funeral, and the other end would be to ward off evil spirits. And it would be a kind of superstition that surrounds funerals, even today, that I still walk in front of funerals, very often through this very area of Bermondsey Street, with my stick waving in front. Legends and superstitions, Bermondsey's full of it. And those superstitions gather around you. I believe there has to be more to this life, much more to this life. Sometimes 
people don't know they're dead. Maybe there is a certain sort of atmosphere in, in Bermondsey which means that it's ghosts still sort of hover among the streets. We, we die, and maybe the soul or the spirit of that person doesn't quite understand what's happened to them. For me, it doesn't frighten me. It gives me great peace, actually. I like to think your funeral director, if he's a family person like we are here, is the kind of midwife that sees you on. Exit the graveyard at the other end through the corner gate on your far right. You'll see Café Delazise opposite you on the right. Go inside. Inside Café Delazise, turn right and head to the back of the café. Go up the steps and look beneath your feet for the remains of Bermondsey Abbey. The Abbey really makes Bermondsey a, a place, as it were, a proper place, and it's mentioned in the Doomsday Book, and the Abbey itself dates back to the Norman Conquest, and it was founded by a French order of monks, so founded in the 11th century and became very, very wealthy in the medieval period and was used by kings and queens who came and stayed there and patronised it and gave it more money became a place of pilgrimage because of this Saxon cross that, that people found and was a very, very flourishing institution. But then, like all abbeys, um, it comes a cropper in the reign of Henry VIII who um, dissolves the monasteries and um, passes all that rich, wealthy monastic property onto his courtiers. And somebody gets Bermondsey Abbey and knocks it down and uses the stone to build a house for himself. So that's sort of the end of the Abbey, but it's left a legacy in the sense of Bermondsey itself, because Bermondsey, you know, that time that the Abbey was there, that was when the sort of major streets were, were built and some of the major settlements were, were started. So um, without the Abbey, it's probably fair to say that Bermondsey wouldn't exist today. The fortunes of those who have figured in this tale are nearly closed. The little that remains to their historian to relate is told in a few and simple words. The Bermondsey I knew is gone. 
it's a different world. When I walk along the dock areas now, where you, where it hasn't been altered, I can still that feel that thing of when I worked there as a docker. You can sense, and I look up the narrow alleyways. Beginning of October and September, we went on the paddle steamer. I sat on that, and I could see and feel something was there. And the chap said to me, he said, you're looking there as though you're... Sorry. As though you were lost, in here. I said, I probably am. <laughs> 